Hey, everybody. It's Kai Rosdahl. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Corner Office Podcast. The guest today is Stuart Butterfield, the co-founder and CEO of Slack. It is, for those who might not know it in their workplace or in their home lives, a messaging app started back in 2013. Since popularized in workplaces and community groups, and my kids are on it for crying out loud, around the country and around the world. Slack has 10 million users went public in what's called the direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange this past summer. But that does not mean everybody totally gets what this company does. So here you go. Stuart Butterfield, co-founder and CEO of Slack. We're expecting you. Won't you have a seat? Ready to go to work? Uh, Stuart Butterfield, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. There will be people who uh, listen to this interview who don't know what Slack is. What? The, I know. That I seems know. impossible. Well, look, me two years ago would have been the same thing, yep. right? And, and many others. So what's the, you know, for those who don't know? Um, if I want to put it in really simple terms, I would say it's a messaging app for teams. Um, I don't think that really gives you the whole that, picture. That tells me nothing. Yeah, yeah. so let me, uh, okay. I'll, I'll so, elaborate a little bit. So <laughs> I guess the, the big thing is um, in Slack, messages go into what we call channels. Mm-hmm. So people are really used to using email to mediate their communication mm-hmm. inside of big organizations, small organizations, any of them. And in, in every case, each person has their own view. So everyone's inbox is unique. Everyone's inbox is locked away from everyone else. And mm-hmm. everyone's inbox is kind of partial and fragmented. So when you put messages into channels instead of inboxes, it's kind of a, a team-first or an organization-first approach to communication in contrast to an individual-first approach. And the advantage is that people can join a project months after it started and join that channel and have access to the whole history. Everyone's looking at the same thing instead of their own version. And that just gives a lot more leverage on communication. Because if you look at any office building, and it doesn't have to be inside of offices, but kind of freeze frame um, and kind of peeked over every single person's shoulders, 50%. 60% of the people, maybe more than that, are going to be working on uh, basic communication and coordination yeah. with the other people. So they're working on a slide deck. They're going to show at a meeting that's about updating the status of, you know, of what's going on with these projects. They're planning. And I, I, when I say that, it sounds like it's dismissive, but it's actually really, really important, that work, um, which is why we spend so much time on it. If you can get any leverage on that, it's huge. When you say leverage, what does that mean? Just getting an advantage, getting an easier way to do it, more productive? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, well, uh, give you a real concrete yeah. example. So two years ago, um, we were closing Oracle, the software company. So yeah. they're, even at the time, they were going to be our second biggest customer. So this right. is obviously a, a Cl- big Closing deal. the deal, as yeah. it were. Right. And at this scale, deals are really complicated. There's 100 people on their side. So security, legal, procurement, yeah. IT, finance, all, all these different people working on a change management plan. And this is two and, years ago when Slack was not a huge company, right? No. Yeah. Um, and there was two dozen people on our side yeah. working on it. Um, so there's obviously a lot to coordinate. But here's the, the crazy thing. So this is going to be our second biggest customer. It's obviously a really big de- deal to me. I'm the CEO. And never once in this maybe six to nine months or so that it took to, to complete it did I ask anyone, how's it going with Oracle or give me an update or anything like that. I would just look in the just channel. Just check the channel. Yeah. And I could see here's where we are with the security review and the vendor approval process and all that stuff. So let me ask you this, though. As the guy running the company, you're probably in a thousand channels at Slack HQ. Literally right? thousands. Yes. So... Which gets to my point. Mm-hmm. Isn't Slack sometimes a little bit overloading? And don't you have to sort of decide what you're not going to participate in and mute and all this? I mean, how do you use it on a daily basis? You do. And um, I think it takes some getting used to it. I mean, people have to adjust patterns of communication. Because if you look at it this way, imagine a 10,000 person organization. 
And the person who gets the most email inside of that organization might get one one hundredth of a percent of all the email that's mm-hmm. going through the whole company. In Slack, what's typical for organizations of 10,000 is 10 to 15% of the messages will be in, in what we call public channels. So they're not public to the whole right. world. They're public inside of the organization. Right. So that's a thousand times more access to information than you would otherwise have. So you want it, but the, the trick is you want it like, I want everything that's on the internet via Google. I just want right. to be able to search for it. Right. I don't want it right. all coming at me all the time. So I think tuning notifications and channel membership and getting things set up just right. And also, you know, to be honest, some a cultural shift or a, some shift in, in habits across the company are necessary to really get the most out of it. Do you leave desktop warnings on? Do you let it play a sound when you get a new Slack? I mean, no, I don't. I have all sounds and all notifications off on all of my devices. So smart man, yeah. smart man. Part of your vibe though, actually just to the whole notifications off thing is you have to be able to detach, right? Mm-hmm. You and this company try to take a really holistic view of life, not just work life, but life life. Yeah. How do you disconnect when your boss, or well, my boss, not your boss, <laughs> uh, can slack you at nine o'clock at night and say, hey, where's this story? Well, I'm glad your boss isn't slacking me at nine o'clock at night. Um, She's actually not on Slack, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> so I think, um, like I said, people have to shift their behaviors a little bit, and this is not a new problem. I remember, you, yeah. you know, Walt Mossberg, um, yeah, longtime colonist for the right, Wall Street Journal. Journal. He switched to Slack in 2016 or 2017. Um, when, it's kind of late. Yeah. Well, when Vox bought. Oh, of Slack, course. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he wanted to do an interview, and he's also a famously cranky guy. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're going to leave that in, by the yeah, way, okay, so that when he hears good. it. I'm sure he will appreciate yeah. it. Uh, he's. Excellent, excellent taste and very yeah. insightful. But he was saying, ah, it's too many notifications, it's too busy, there's too much going on. And I reminded him, I don't know if, he, I don't remember he wrote this, but in the journal in 2001, there's this article about Blackberries are ruining our oh, lives. Man. There's no such thing oh, as a vacation man. anymore. There's no work-life balance. So it is, once you get a technology, there's a, a period of adjusting to it to get the most out of it while kind of minimizing the downside. Do you want to replace email? Is that the deal? I want to replace email for internal communication. So inside of companies. Right. The difference is like email is, um, I think this is, both a, a virtue, a benefit, and also something that really uh, makes it difficult is it's for all kinds of stuff. So everything you buy on Amazon, every receipt goes in there. Yeah, you yeah. take a Lyft ride or, or an Uber or something like that. It is wedding invitations and birth announcements. It's like stupid jokes from family members. Um, it's all the stuff, plus like critical documents and announcements inside of the workplace. And there's a real tax on the cognitive switching between each of those items. Right. But I think for the reasons I mentioned earlier, the inboxes versus channel stuff, um, email is just a lousy way to communicate inside of a company. And in the outside world, you don't have a choice. That, and that's okay, because I think it's a virtue yeah. of email that it's lowest common denominator. Um, anyone can participate. Anyone can run their own server. Everyone can choose their own email address. Right. But inside a company, you don't have to use it, so you shouldn't. So look, so I'm, I'm going to pull up uh, the Marketplace's Slack app here. And uh, let's see, our channels, there's Hot on Social. There's a thing for a podcast I do. There's newsletter recommendations. There's party people. There may well be one that's like dogs of marketplace that I'm not on, you know? Mm-hmm. So there is a certain amount of um, uh, less serious communication that happens on Slack, right? There is. You're good with that. I'm, I'm really good with that. So you think about the time off and the travel and the expense of the, um, the kind of facility that you use to go have the team offsite. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trust falls or the zip lining or whatever it is that you're doing there. Right. And the whole purpose of that is getting people to trust one another, to get to know one another. So we look, there's some frivolous ones for sure. Um, there's, there's a channel inside of our Slack instance for fans of Rick and Morty and another one for fans of Game of Thrones. Um, 
But there's also one called Parentland, which is a private channel, um, and people use it to give each other help and advice and support um, for people who have young kids. There's um, another one that actually like, spun out to become one of our employee resource groups called Earth Tones, which is for people of color inside of Slack. Mm. And I think there's a phenomenon whereby trust and the amount of communication required to get a job done are inversely correlated. So in yeah. a high-trust environment, you don't really need to communicate very much. In a low-trust environment, every point is kind of lawyered and you go back and forth and people are questioning each other constantly. Um, that makes a huge difference to how easy it is to get work done. Do you think Slack increases or decreases communication inside a workplace? I think it increases communication, but it probably, and this, I think it's a very marginal benefit, but yeah. probably marginally decreases the amount of time that people spend on it. But people are still going to spend pretty close to the same amount. It's just a much higher return on that effort. Right. Um, talk to me for a second about all this uh, stuff that you now know about us, right? I write a Slack to you know a colleague, and you have it somewhere on your servers, and you multiply me times a gazillion Slack users. You're nodding now and going, yeah. I know yeah. where this question is going. It's a heavy responsibility. Right. So A, how can we trust you? And B, what are you doing to safeguard all of this information? Because a lot of people out there, their worst nightmare will be that their slacks get published. Yes. Um, So, I mean, I think we are one of a a number of companies that are um, custodians and and almost like fiduciaries to a large number of customers and have uh, a real obligation to protect you. So we invest a lot in that. We have a great security team, but I think it's... um, the general public probably overestimates the true threat from like black background, green characters, hackers bent over at night doing malicious stuff, and underestimates the threat from bad actors both inside their organization and outside, and kind of the social hacking and manipulation. So the policies that we encourage customers to put in place, the, the controls, we have a number of big customers in financial services, and they often have, you know, like a a really big number of people. So inside some of the biggest banks, thousands and thousands of people who just work on internal compliance. So there's tools that we make available for them for what's called digital loss prevention, mm-hmm. e-discovery, all and, that kind of and, stuff. And we should be clear, this isn't the paid version of Slack, right? A lot yeah. of companies out there use it, use the free version, but you don't get all the, the bells and whistles as it were. That, that's true, but I think the free version is is meant as a free trial because I had this experience <laughs> like, you know a lot of software in the old days had a 30 day yeah, trial yeah, period yeah. and I would sign up for stuff and I would think oh, I should really try that and the next time I thought about it was the email that says your trial is over Yeah, um, and I never yeah. got a chance to try it Yeah, um, you're now running a publicly traded company I am. How has that changed your life? Not a lot has changed, to be to be totally honest. Um, oh, come on. It must yeah. change how you think about the decisions you're making. You're now responsible to other people, as it were, well, to, I mean, to, to, shareholder, to shareholders, yes. right? To the, to the larger market. And the, and the difference was, in you know, a year ago, three years ago, investors had to be nice to me for me to let them invest. Right. Um, now, right. anyone can just buy shares and tell me what to do. <laughs> right. um, but I think, it, you know, it's a... It's a uh, very generous market environment right now. Um, we're doing great <laughs> as a company. And so there's not a lot of pressure that arises. I'm totally prepared to, um, to listen to people and to take responsibility for our, our business decisions. Because I think in the long run, um, never mind what the market's like today or how the stock does in any given day, in the long run, there are hundreds of millions of people whose working lives are mediated by email who should be using Slack or something like it. So maybe we don't end up with 100% market share, but the market is orders of magnitude bigger than where we're at today. Two uh, people using Slack or something like it. Uh, two yeah. words, Microsoft Teams. Yes. Uh, they're, they're coming for you. Yeah, I mean, I should say first, um, 
I have a huge amount of respect for Microsoft and and the current team. Um, I just saw Satya very briefly at another event. Satya and Dallas, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're also a great partner of ours. So um, in Azure especially, because there's a huge number of developers on the Slack platform, right. so 500,000 active developers. Um, and with Office 365 itself, um, integrations for Calendar, which we just launched, and email, um, I think people will make different choices, but there's also different priorities at work there. If you look at the team's product announcements, there's a big emphasis on... Um, conference room integrations and voice calling and video calling. And there's an emphasis on the models of hardware VoIP desk phones mm-hmm. that they support. And um, I think a lot, of the, a lot of that's coming from the migration of Skype for Business users. So Skype for Business is not Skype. It's the product that was formerly called Link and before that Communicator right. um, and used for video conferencing and voice and video calling um, to Teams. So most of the usage that, I mean, obviously we don't have perfect visibility into everyone's offices, yeah. um, but most of the usage that we've seen and heard about is um, on that basis. It's, it's voice and video calling, whereas Slack is used in a bewildering variety of ways um, by well, cattle ranchers which and is dentist true, offices. Right? But, and, and, yeah. uh, do you embrace that bewildering variety of ways? I'm sorry to cut you off, but that's oh, an yeah. interesting phrase. No, it, absolutely. Um, and, and it's, you know, when we first started, there's eight people. And we thought... And now you have how many? Uh, about 1,800. Okay. Um, yeah, so we thought, geez, this is a great way of working. This will be great for other eight-person software development teams. Um, we never thought that we would see um, people at running restaurants using Slack or hoteliers or dental offices or tax preparers. You know, we just didn't envision the variety of, of use cases. Are you still then a, a small, scrappy startup? I don't think so anymore. We're a, a gangly adolescent, maybe, something yeah. like that. Go, going up against Microsoft. I mean, that's, that's got to be intimidating. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen that picture of uh, the Microsoft team when they're still in Albuquerque in 1977. Oh, of course. Yeah. Sure. Um, with with Bill for, Gates and, and, and Paul Allen. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if uh, listeners can, can Google that, it's... Are, it's are you, guys, you guys are that picture? Is that the comparison you're making? No, no, no. But if you look at that picture... Because <laughs> that's a gutsy move, man. I can't remember if it's 77 or 79. Right. But by 1982, the tides had right. turned and IBM, which was the biggest and most powerful and uh, most valuable company in the entire world, just got bested by Microsoft. And Microsoft kind of got the most strategic piece. But you fast forward from there, so like the early 80s to 2000, 2001, 2002, Microsoft sees this startup um, out of Mountain View doing really yeah. well, and that's an interesting business, and maybe search is something they should get into. And this is at a time Microsoft has 95% share uh, of operating right. systems with Windows, 90 plus percent share of Internet Explorer, so they controlled the whole world's access to the Internet. Um, they had MSN, they bought Hotmail, they had a huge number of uh, engineers building network stuff, and they thought, we should build a search engine. And so $25 billion in two decades later didn't make a whole lot of progress. And you could say, that's special because the Google team was real geniuses. Right. Same thing, 2007, so like fast forward another six years, seven years, they see people are spending a lot of their time on these social networks. We should try something like that because that's actually a pretty good uh, area for advertising as well. And if you remember, they made every YouTube commenter open a Google Plus account. Yeah. It was the only time, I think, in their whole history as a company they promoted something on the Google homepage directly. Um, they promoted it in Gmail and they tried to get people to use Google Plus. And there's not, I don't even know if it exists anymore. Um, if it does, it is not well used. So the, the point I'm trying to make here is sometimes the small, small startup with, with uh, real traction. Yeah as an advantage versus the large incumbent with multiple lines of business and a lot of stuff to protect. You are, 
Your background, uh, I wonder how much your background, which is by your own admission like a hippie commune thing in British Columbia 40 years ago, mm-hmm. um, contributes to your work-life balance thought, right? Because you're, you're pretty vocal that you need to just shut it all down sometimes. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, it's, there's a bunch of things. Um, we kind of look at this as a yin and yang, so that they're really they're related. That you should, when you're working, be disciplined, professional, and focused. And we have um, there's a number of people I've worked with in my life who are just incredible at that. You know, they're not um, dictatorial. They're not. They never chide anyone, but they just bring this focus on what we're trying to accomplish together. And then they're out the door at five twenty-five or something mm-hmm. like that, um, and still get more done in a day than, than most people. And I think those things really work together because inside the office we have a big sign. It's not without its controversy, but it says work hard, go home. And the, the yin-yang <laughs> is work hard, go home. Go home yeah. Because part of that is also um, not just about work-life balance in the sense that you should take care of yourself, but the practical realities of a lot of people. We want to be able to hire any kind of person. And some people have kids to take care of. Some people have... Um, religious stuff that's important to them or they're active in their community or they, in other words, they have something else to do outside of the workplace. And I th- you only have a, a certain number of hours of really creative, productive, high energy work that you can um, get done in a day. So it's much more important to us that people are focused and disciplined and professional while they're working. So we don't have foosball tables or ping pong tables or anything like that, which is nothing against people who choose to do that. Yeah. Um, but the, the trade-off is then you get to go home at a reasonable time and, and separate and clear your mind and take care of whatever you need to take care of and do some things that are important to you, and then we'll come back tomorrow and do it again. If I call Slack a, a social network for the office, does that work for you? No, I don't think... I think it's, what's happening is really different. Um, and I don't want to get too, too technical or, or too deep and philosophical, but one of the biggest trends is, uh, that, that matters to us is yeah. the proliferation of software. So you go back, um, this is actually the 40th this year, is the 40th anniversary of the launch of VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet. Wow. Okay. Um, and at that time, there weren't really a, reasons for people to have computers, but spreadsheets were the killer app. You know, yeah. They're the reasons that the that desktop computers became a thing inside of companies. And you fast forward like five years, 10 years, it goes from, uh, the, on average, per employee per year, businesses may have been spending $10 on software yeah. to to $500, to $1,000, to a couple thousand dollars. And we don't have a, a perfect insight on this now, but um, our estimates are somewhere between four and $8,000 per employee wow. per year on software. And the, the crazy thing is, we're, like I said, an 1,800-person company. We buy from 400 different vendors. Wow. The average for large enterprises in the US, US is over 1,000 different cloud services in use because there's this amazing proliferation of finer and finer niches yeah. um, in marketing automation, in claims processing, in um, contract management, in all these different categories. So um, when I say a social network for the office doesn't make sense for us, what, what Slack really is, is, and none of these metaphors are perfect, but a kind of a connective tissue or a central a nervous system that goes through the organization. There are these channels of communication and information flows through them. And it's not just people talking, it's all of these different systems that they're using. And, and there is the business model insight, right? That's, that's your... Uh, that's why people need you. Yeah, I mean, it's the business model insight that our CFO, Alan Shim, came up with this. Um, we want to be the one or 2% of your software budget that's a multiplier on the value of the other 98 or 99% because <laughs> yeah. we integrate with almost everything. You went public. You didn't do a traditional IPO. You did this thing called the direct listing. First of all, remind people what it is and why you did it. Sure. So in a traditional IPO, um, the company sells a bunch of shares to banks who act as underwriters, and the banks turn around and sell those to investors. And then the investors turn around and sell some of those in the, on the public markets um, 
But the reason all that happens is because the company is raising a bunch of money. Um, when you raise new money at the company, you give up, uh, you dilute the existing shareholders. We had a lot of money um, coming into the listing process. We had over $800 million on the balance sheet. You didn't need the capital market. We didn't need the capital. Um, but we still wanted to be listed. There's a bunch of reasons for that. We have a lot of large enterprise and government customers who would want to inspect our financials anyway. It gives us this credibility. Mm-hmm. It opens up other capital markets for us. Um, it's, you know, all the regular reasons why you would want to be a publicly listed company we wanted, but we didn't want necessarily to, um, to dilute our existing shareholders or, or uh, raise new capital now. So direct listing is otherwise the same, except um, whereas in a traditional IPO, there's one seller and a mm-hmm. bunch of buyers. In a, in a direct listing, there's anyone can sell, anyone who has shares, and anyone can buy. So theoretically, it's much better price discovery. And I think that's actually what we saw. So mm-hmm. it's not totally fair to compare it to a traditional IPO, but the opening trade, so the, the, kind of, the market maker will build a book of all the orders and stuff like that. And once they get a clearing price, they'll, that'll be the first trade, and then the stock starts ticking right. up and down. Um, the first trade for Slack was $1.75 billion, the third biggest in the history of the New York Stock Exchange, huh. Alibaba, Facebook, and then us, because wow. of that direct listing process. So what we were looking for was volume and low volatility, and that, from a technical perspective, was really perfect. Um, You've been around technology for a long time. I have. Uh, like, like 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. a while. How are we doing? How, how are how we doing? How are we doing as a society dealing with technology? I, I, well, I mean, you're asking a, uh, someone who is an academic philosopher in a past life, so I, I don't know. know how many thousands of years you want to go back, but we have this <laughs> incredible relationship. <laughs> how about you can answer this in a minute. How about yeah, you do yeah. that? Um, we go, like, there's big innovations, and it often takes us a while to figure out what they're for. You know, there's this famous quote of um, T.J. Watson, president of IBM in the 1950s, -hmm. estimating the size of the market, the worldwide market for computers as literally about five. So like approximately five computers was all the world needed because you just don't understand what the applications could be. This guy's a genius, um, but just couldn't see it at that time. So I think we're still really, really early in this process. But I look back through the big technologies, and I mean things like, agriculture or the yeah. domestication of animals or the development of uh, written language. I think the development of networked computers that to like at the speed of light, literally at the speed of light to transmit thoughts from one human being to another will be thought of as um, the biggest or second or third or fourth biggest technological shift in all of history. So I think we're very, very, very early in this process, which is going to be hundreds of years. Cause you just think about like 15 years ago, the Nokia T, you know, yeah. the T9 typing yeah. system. And then, I don't know, 2005, the Motorola Razor came out. You remember yeah. that phone? Yes, how, I do. Have how it. cool it was. It was people very, would like, it take was, it out of their pocket. very cool. Yeah, they put it on and the table at lunch so everyone could yeah. see that they had one of yeah. those. And now it just looks like this anachronistic, it almost looks like the yeah. brick phones from, yeah. from a decade earlier. But now it's not, it's not just that the phone is, has a better screen or a different way of typing. It's transformed the way the 40% of American relationships now start online. Yeah. Um, it's transformed the economy. It's created, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars of market yeah. cap. Um, it's changed the way we spend hours of, of time. And one, the definition of innovation that I found um, that I love that works the best is what is innovation but a change in human behavior? Because there's no big innovation that ever failed to produce a big change and no um, small innovation ever did cause one. So I, I feel like this is one of the biggest innovations mm-hmm. in history. We've, we've shifted collectively eight hours a day times three billion people, so 24 billion hours of human time uh, a day, Working, yeah. you know, trillions of hours of time a year have shifted from one set of things that people used to do to a new thing that they do. And I think the impact of that over the next 
couple hundred years will be even bigger than we imagined today. So it's early yet? Very early. Stuart Butterfield, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. All right, that was my conversation with Stuart Butterfield, the co-founder and CEO of Slack. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked what you heard, oh, go ahead. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. It really helps us out. The Corner Office podcast series is produced by Bridget Bonder. This episode by Maria Hollenhorst. Marketplace on the radio is produced by Nancy Fargali. Sitar Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. I'm Kai Rizdal. Another episode for you of this Corner Office podcast in a couple of weeks. Hold up. 